This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we are going to read verses 1 through 7, although our attention this morning will be focused on verse 1, Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we give thanks to you for your word, and Lord, we pray as we study it this morning that your spirit would teach us, that our eyes would be open, our ears open, Lord, our hearts open to receive those things that you would teach us. Father, help us as we think about your truths this morning, as we think about these words of scripture, Uh, Lord, not only to think about them and and understand them and apply them, Lord, we certainly pray for that, but also, Lord, to love you with our minds, to worship you with all our hearts, and uh, glorify you, Lord, even as you instruct us, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. While Facebook and other social media allow us to keep up with other people, ironically, they also force us to think about ourselves, think about what we are revealing of ourselves when we post, what we portray of ourselves. And even before then, when you sign up, you have to fill out and, of course, after that, update, maintain a profile, which is a way of customizing what we want people to know about us, how we want people to see us. But even before we can do that, it's true that whether we think about it or not, we also have to have some idea of how we see ourselves. We have to know how we see ourselves to be able to set up how we want other people to see us. Now, of course, the Apostle Paul was not on Facebook. I am friends with Charles Spurgeon on Facebook, but I think it's not actually the Charles Spurgeon who lived in the 1800s. 
But uh, but Paul was not on Facebook, and yet in this letter he gives essentially what amounts to in these first verses his profile to the Christians who lived in Rome. Now Paul was largely unknown to them, and they to him. He did know some people in the church in Rome, but he did not plant that church. He had not been to that church. And he hoped to visit that church, and he hoped that that church would later serve as a springboard for him to go to Spain as he sought to extend the gospel of Christ ever further. He hoped that uh, Rome might serve as a starting point for a mission to Spain in the future. However, when Paul wrote this, probably the year A.D. 57, he was on his way to Jerusalem. He spent three months in Greece, the city of Corinth. Uh, where he writes to the Christians in Rome. And so it's important for him to think about how they would perceive him. Maybe they had heard things that were right. Maybe they heard things about him that were wrong. And so in these first verses, Paul is essentially setting up his profile with them. He's saying, this is who I am. This is what I am about. This is how Paul sees himself. And so as we study these verses, it's important to look at them carefully because they give us some idea how Paul sees himself. And therefore, because of who he was as a Christian leader, a Christian apostle, they also have something to say to us about some ways that we as Christians should see ourselves. Now, this is the greeting to the letter. Now, we often don't look for a whole lot of message in a greeting, but uh, Paul's letters were somewhat unusual. For one thing, they were longer, much longer than most letters of the first century. For another thing, uh, when he begins his letters, uh, he put much more into those greetings than was customary in a letter. Even today, when we send a letter or write uh, an an email, we just identify uh, ourselves. We may say, dear so-and-so or hi, so-and-so, and just go into it. Well, Paul particularly because he's writing to people who don't know him, uh, goes on at some length as to who he is and what he is about. So as we look at these verses, especially verse 1 this morning, we want to say, what does this profile say? How does Paul see himself? How does he want us to see him? And so we look at that in verse 1. The first way that Paul identifies himself uh, after his name, Paul, which is probably his, his Roman, one of his Roman names, his Hebrew name Saul, uh, and the first thing he identifies about himself is he sees himself as a servant. Notice he says, a servant of Christ Jesus. You could also translate that a slave of Christ Jesus. Now, this is a designation, not of Christ Jesus, but a servant of the Lord that actually has considerable background in the Old Testament. For Paul to use this expression of himself, he was using a title that was accorded to Abraham in Genesis 26, a servant of the Lord, uh, to Moses, to Joshua, to David, to various of the prophets. So there's Old Testament background for this designation that Paul gives to himself as a servant of the Lord, a servant of Christ Jesus. Uh, the word, again, is the idea of a, a bondservant, a slave. When Paul uses that term of himself, he's designating himself as someone who belongs to the Lord. Someone whose time 
energy, priorities, agenda, life, is at the Lord's disposal. He is a servant of Christ Jesus, entirely at his disposal. Now, we need to recognize, while that's something of a title of honor in the Old Testament, in the the world uh, of Paul's day among the Greeks and the Romans, this was a loathsome term. Few people, maybe almost nobody, would identify himself as a slave, even if he was one. It was a term of abasement. It was a term of humility. And it was not a term that most people would willingly take to themselves. But Paul does. He says, I am a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. I belong to him. I am at his disposal. Now, it may have been loathsome in the, the world in which, Paul's, in which Paul lived. And, and honestly, it probably is in ours, too. But as Christians, it should not be loathsome to us. Because it's true of us. We belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. What was the price? It was the, it was the blood. It was the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what redemption is. We are redeemed. How we love to proclaim it. What does it mean to be redeemed? It means that we have been bought out of slavery. We've been purchased out of slavery to belong to another. Paul refers to himself as a servant or a slave of Christ Jesus. That should not be loathsome to us. That's what it means to belong to Christ. Is that your mindset? That you are a slave of Christ, that you are at his disposal, that you belong to him entirely. Or do you see Christ as your servant? Many Christians probably wouldn't put it that way. But the reality is they live their lives by their agenda, with their priorities, on their time frame, and expect God to answer to them, to bless their agenda, to do what they want him to do for them. You see how totally reversed Paul's mindset is. Right up front, a slave. First thing he says about himself is, as I am wholly given to Christ. I belong entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you say that of yourself? Does your life reflect that mentality that you belong entirely to the Lord? Well, that's what he says. And, and Paul, frankly, sees other Christians as, as being servants of the Lord. Uh, in Galatians uh, 6, 6, in other places as well, uh, Paul will refer to other believers as servants of Christ, you as a servant of the Lord. So Paul doesn't restrict this to himself. This should be true of all of us uh, who are believers, to see ourselves in this way. Now notice, Paul also says he is a servant of whom? Of Christ Jesus which actually turns things around. To be a slave is is humility, but to be a slave of Christ Jesus is glory. To be a slave of Christ is freedom, because he has set us free from the most horrid, oppressive taskmaster of all, and that is sin. That's that's It's death. He has set us free. Slavery to Christ is the greatest freedom a person 
can know. Because we are set free to be who we are as creatures made in the image of God and yet uh, under the bondage of sin. And Christ has set us free to belong to him. Now, notice Paul mentions Christ right up front. He mentions he's the servant, but he's the servant of Christ Jesus. Christ was came, Christ's name came readily and quickly to Paul's lips. Christ was at the center of who he was. And that, too, should be true of us as well, that we very quickly and readily identify ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Some Christians seem to do everything they can to keep people from knowing they belong to Jesus. For Paul, it was right up front. I am a slave of Christ Jesus. In fact, uh, he mentions both the title and the name, Jesus, his human name, right? The one the angel told uh, Joseph and Mary they were to give him. They name him Jesus, the, the, the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means something like the Lord saves because he will save his people from their sins. Christ was not his, his first name or his last name so much as it was a title. Christ was the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah. The anointed one, the one who would bring redemption, the one who would save. And in fact, Paul's ministry was very much about showing that this human Jesus, whom people had heard of or even witnessed firsthand, was in fact the promised Messiah. In fact, right after Paul's conversion, you see this in the book of Acts, chapter 9. Right after he's converted, he's with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying he's the Son of God. And everybody was amazed. Is this not the man who wreaked havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? Wasn't this the guy who was persecuting Christians and now he's preaching Christ? You can imagine their bewilderment at this turnaround. But notice verse 22, Acts 9, 22. Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So Paul, immediately after his conversion, is about this business of preaching Jesus as the Son of God and demonstrating, proving from the Scriptures, which is assumed there, proving from the Scriptures that this Jesus that people knew about was, in fact, the promised Messiah. And so the first thing that we see here, how does Paul see himself? Well, he sees himself as a servant of Christ Jesus. He identifies himself in that way right up front. Well, how else does he see himself? Well, go on in verse 1. He sees himself as one called to be an apostle. Now, he gives these three designations, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And there, there may be something of a progression there. I don't know that Paul just randomly threw those out. There may have been some thought that went into the order in which those appear. He's a servant of Christ Jesus. But he's also, as he says, called to be an apostle. Called by whom? Well, called by Christ, of course. Uh, we, we read about that in Acts 26 in our New Testament reading. Again, chapter 9, chapter 22 in the book of Acts. Uh, Paul, or Luke records his conversion. Luke records Paul describing his, his conversion, his call to Christ. But the Lord Jesus encounters Paul there on the Damascus Road, and he calls him to this office. Now, all Christians are called in one way or another. That's not unique. In fact, uh, you may have noticed in verse 6, as Paul writes to the Romans, he says, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. As Christians, there are all kinds of callings that we fulfill, 
we are called, of course, as, as he says, as to belong to Christ as Christians. Uh, you are called, if you are married, to be a husband. You have a calling to be a wife. Uh, some of you are called to be God-glorifying children of your parents, called to be students at school. Uh, they're called to be a faithful member of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church. There are kinds of callings that we have that the Lord places upon us and calling us to himself and calling him to the various roles. Well, Paul says that he is called to be an apostle. Now, this is a term that is used in a number of ways in the scripture. Uh, the basic idea of an apostle is one who is sent out. Uh, in a fairly narrow sense, it describes someone who is sent as an authoritative representative of somebody else. Now, the word is used a little different in a few different ways in the New Testament, sometimes a little more generally, a little more broadly. There are some outside the twelve to whom that title seems to be applied. And yet, in its most formal sense, in its most restricted sense, it refers to those who have been authoritatively called by Christ and commissioned to bear witness to him, to give, in a sense, the authorized uh, exposition and proclamation of the person and work of Christ. Paul wrote much of the New Testament. There were others who wrote it who were apostles, some who were not apostles. Luke, for example, was not one of the apostles, but he wrote under apostolic uh, approval and, uh, and and submission to the teachings that he received from them. Well, what were the requirements to be an apostle in this sense in which Paul uses it here? It's interesting, in the beginning of the book of Acts, uh, the, the, the twelve were faced with the fact they weren't the twelve, they were the eleven. Uh, it's kind of like uh, the Big Ten with, what, eight teams? Uh, they were they were the twelve. The problem was there were only eleven of them. And so notice notice what they say in the beginning, or rather the end of Acts chapter one. They they recognize this difficulty. Uh, verse sixteen, the, Peter says the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who were arrested, and they acknowledge that one of their own had betrayed Jesus. He was numbered among us, was allotted his share in this ministry. Of course, he's no longer there. He committed suicide after betraying Jesus. And so Peter says in verse 21, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And so they put forward a couple of men, and uh, they cast lots in submission to the Lord. Verse 24, they prayed. They said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you've chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Um Qualifications, someone who had witnessed the life and the ministry of Jesus. Uh, someone particularly, he says, who had witnessed the resurrection of Jesus, could bear witness to the fact that this man was dead, but he is now alive. And, and rightly so, because that was, that was the foundational pillar of the gospel. 
that Christ had been crucified, was dead, and is now raised, and now lives. Because if Paul goes on at length in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus is still dead, then we are still in our sins, and we're lying about God if we say he raised Jesus from the dead, and we have no hope, so just go out and nothing to see here, move along. Uh, but of course, that's not true. Christ has been risen. Now, what about Paul? Well, it's an interesting thing to conjecture how much of Jesus' earthly ministry Saul of Tarsus was aware of, um, what he knew about Jesus' ministry, uh, what interaction, if any, he had with Jesus firsthand, either listening or maybe even conversing, we don't know. Uh, but he certainly um, was not a follower of Christ then, and in fact uh, is quite uh, vehemently hunting down the church, of course, when Jesus calls, uh, calls Saul to himself. But there's no doubt that the Lord Jesus called Saul into his ministry, into his service. Uh, he was a witness of the resurrection insofar as he has seen the risen Christ who appeared to him and certainly called him to his service. But even Paul himself saw his, his apostleship while he defended it and asserted it, if need be, at the same time recognized some, something of the anomalous nature of it, that he was born as one out of due time, that the Lord later called him to himself. Now, this is a unique group. There are no apostles in this sense, this, this unique, authorized, narrow sense of the term today. It was uh, their teaching that forms the basis for the, the New Testament. In fact, as we saw studying Second Timothy, and Paul says to him, you know, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. What is that deposit? Well, it's the apostolic teaching that he had received, not to mention the example. So Paul sees himself as one called to be an apostle. He, he has, he's a servant of Christ, but he also is an apostle. He is called to be, among other things, this authoritative witness to the work and the resurrection, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Speaking of, he then comes to his third, third thing he, he reveals here, third way that he sees himself in this profile of his, and that is as one set apart, set apart for the gospel of God. He is a servant, slave of Christ Jesus. He has been called to this office of apostle, but he also is one who has been set apart for the gospel of God. Now, the word or the expression to be set apart is, again, something with Old Testament background. You find it in a number of places. Uh, setting apart to God of the firstborn of man and beast in Exodus, that's the term that's used. Uh, setting apart the first fruits in Numbers 15. Consecrating the Levites to divine service on behalf of Israel. They are set apart for that work. Uh, even God speaking of Israel as a whole, separating them out from the nations to be his special possession in Leviticus 20. They are described as being set apart from the world to belong to God. So if calling is referring to Paul's office, then setting apart refers to his being consecrated to, given to this task of the gospel of God. And you see this in the New Testament as well. Uh, just to refer back to Acts 13, 
says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. There, particularly for this missionary journey, and Paul's referring here in a little broader sense, that his whole life, not just a particular journey, but his whole life has been set apart to the gospel. In a sense, that's what ordination is. When the church ordains a man to the office of deacon or to the office of ruling elder or teaching elder, it is setting him apart to that task. Now, for Paul, uh, being set apart to the gospel indicates that he is to be dedicated to that, that that is to be the purpose of his life, that he's set apart from other things to pursue the proclamation and teaching, declaration of the gospel of God. Now, he says he's just set apart for the gospel. Uh, interesting word. It means good news. You see it, in a sense, in the Old Testament uh, to announce good news. First Kings 1, Jeremiah 20, to announce victory. It's also used of the work of God to describe his breaking in, to describe the kingdom coming in and God's salvation arriving. So even in the Old Testament, this idea had of, of good news had something of a salvation sense to it. But when we come to the New Testament, it really comes into its own. Now, even there, there's some broader cultural context. This word might be used of good news in the culture sometimes. For example, if an heir was born to, uh, to the emperor, to the king, uh, that would be a declaration of good news, good tidings. Um, it also had... Uh, Actually, some uh, almost a religious element to it there because of the place of emperor worship uh, in the Roman Empire. Uh, the Romans were happy for everybody to practice their own religion as long as they were willing to uh, acknowledge the deity of, of the emperor as well, which, of course, caused a problem for Christians who said there's one God, there's one king, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we serve him and we don't bow down to the emperor. Uh, but uh, the, the idea of good news was, was part of that as well. But, of course, for Paul, it's not just good news in general. Notice what he says. It is the, the gospel, the good news, the gospel of God, not of the emperor, not of Rome, the gospel of God. Don't think that word is accidental. It's just a, in Greek, it's just one word of God. In, in English, it's two for the gospel of God, not just any gospel which sort of hints at Paul's understanding that he's not free to make up his own message. There's a very specific good news that he is referring to here. It is the gospel, the good news of God. It's of God, it's divine in its source, it comes from the Lord himself. It's the gospel of God, it's, it's also divine only in its source, but in its character. This is the gospel, as he says to Timothy, which is able to make you wise for salvation. Because it's the gospel of God, because it is divine in its very character. There is power there to draw people to Christ, to transform their lives, to bring them from bondage to sin into service to Christ because of the divine nature as well as the divine source of this good news that Paul is called to proclaim. So as Paul writes to the Romans, you can only imagine he, he's thinking carefully about how he wants to introduce himself. What is profile with them? 
might be. And he, he elaborates on this in verses to come, and we'll take a look at those. And don't worry, we're not planning to go through the entire book of Romans one verse at a time. Although certain sections, we like this one, that's fairly loaded. We do want to take our time and not rush through it, but look at everything that is, is there. Uh, but Paul was very deliberate in how he portrayed himself. That's how he introduced himself to the church in Rome. And so it's worth stopping and looking at verse 1 and saying, how does Paul see himself? And for me, and for you as a Christian, how does that indicate to us that we might need to see ourselves? Well, if I said, tell me about yourself, you would say all kinds of things. And there are a lot more to who you are than just these things. But we could do far worse than to see ourselves primarily as servants of Christ Jesus, called into his service in various capacities, and set apart for the gospel of God. Certainly not quite at the authoritative level as an apostle, but set apart for the gospel nevertheless, in that it is the thing that grips us, that controls us, that dominates us. It is the thing that radiates out from us so that people aren't around us very long before we know it's Christ Jesus we belong to and whom we serve. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that... uh, in a way appropriate to us, these things would be true of us as well. Father, we thank you for your servant Paul. Thank you for the sense in which each of these things was true of him. Thank you, Father, for these words he wrote under inspiration of your Holy Spirit and are preserved for us. And we pray for your blessing and for your help as we study this book of the New Testament, this book of Scripture. Uh, Father, we also pray uh, that you would fill us with your grace Lord, that Christ would not only be in us, and that he would be more and more, but that he would shine out from us as we follow him. We pray it in his name. Amen.